Father, thank you that you are the great promise keeper. Your answers are yes and amen because your word is sure and your power knows no bounds. Thank you, Lord, that one of your promises is to illuminate your word through your spirit. Another of your promises is that you redeem. Lord, would you redeem this time? Would you speak to us through your word? Grow us in the knowledge of you, but beyond that, Lord, grow us in wisdom, how to apply your word. Grow us in love for the God who is the word and the people that your word teaches us to love in your name. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 23 this evening. and Maybe even a peek into chapter 24. We actually peeked into Jeremiah 23 last week because after a couple chapters of just judgment and judgment and judgment and more judgment, we needed a little bit of fresh air and we found it at the beginning of Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 21 and 22, Jeremiah is pronouncing woe after woe over king after king, speaking judgment over the last four kings of Judah. And as we turned the page and glanced into chapter 23, we saw God contrast that with the coming king, contrasting the character of the last four kings of Judah with the coming king, with Jesus and Contrasting their kingdoms. We actually skipped over the first two verses last week, though, because I wanted to get to that contrast. So we'll, be, we'll rewind and we'll begin at the beginning of the chapter this week, which is also a good way to refresh our memory of what God has been saying, because he starts off with more words of indictment. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people, you've scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. Shepherds, we've seen before, refers to the kings of Judah, but not only to the kings. It refers to those who assist and administrate on behalf of the kings and also to the religious leaders of Judah, the priests, the scribes, and others who were, God just said, not only complicit in the king's failings, the various king's shortcomings, but they have guilt of their own because they've failed to uphold their ministry. They've failed to teach. They've failed to instruct people in the law. They've failed to hold people accountable. And they've failed to recognize and heed the instructive and corrective word of God that is being spoken to them by the prophets, Jeremiah and, and others. And that's going to be the theme for this evening. What do we do with the word of the prophets? God indulges in a little bit of wordplay here. And he does a few times in these couple chapters. But he, he says to them, in effect, in these first two verses, you haven't tended my flock. I'm the great shepherd. I've appointed you as under-shepherds, but you haven't appointed the flock that I put you over. So now I'm going to attend to you. 
And he says that in a way that's clearly negative, right? You haven't been taking care of my people, he says to Judah's leaders, so I'm going to take care of you, and you're not going to like it very much. But then verse 3, the tone shifts, and this is what we reached forward for last week. But, change of pace, change in direction, right? But, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. What just happened? We just jumped way forward in time, didn't we? Because verses 3 and 4 are pretty clearly millennial, aren't they? We're speaking here of the second coming, of the coming kingdom. How do we know? How do we know that that just doesn't refer to the return of, of those in exile from Babylon? Well, there's a pretty good clue there in verse 4. They shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. That right there tells us that's a prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled. Because there has been no time since they returned to the land in 536 or so, 536 B.C., that Israel has not been in fear. Not in the post-exile age, not in the 400 years of silence, that we looked at on Christmas, not during the days of the Roman occupation, certainly not after 70 AD in the diaspora, and absolutely not since 1948 when Israel was reestablished as a nation. It's never been true, and it's not true today. But one day it will be. When? Verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord that I'll raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So if we weren't sure from chapter 4 that we were looking at messianic prophecy, we sure are now, aren't we? Branch of righteousness. That, that brings to mind verses from Isaiah, right? Interesting, branch can also be translated here, legitimate sprout, which fits with the way the last chapter ended. Legitimate sprout, legitimate heir. That one title says a lot, doesn't it? Just with one title, it contrasts the character of Jesus with that of Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and certainly Zedekiah, but it also emphasizes Jesus' unique heritage. Descendant of David, rightful heir to David's throne. A king under whom Judah and Israel, notice both the northern and the southern kingdom mentioned there, will reign and prosper. It's interesting, you can also translate a king shall reign and prosper. You can also translate that, a king shall reign wisely. And, and, I, and I can't help it. We've got to glance back at Isaiah 11. You know the verse. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And we know that's talking about Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, 
the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. We're familiar with, with those verses and what, what Jeremiah is saying is that Jesus will rule and reign anointed by the Holy Spirit. He'll execute judgment and righteousness and do all the things that Judas kings have not been doing. He will do what's just and what's right and hold people to, the, to, to that standard of justice and righteousness. But he will do it the way that he ministered in his first coming, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and every time we come across that idea, it's worth pausing. Verse 5, we're reminded of Jesus' humanity, his continuing humanity. We're reminded that Jesus, in his incarnation, was fully man and fully God. The thing we sometimes forget and need, not for, need to not forget, we need to remember, is that today Jesus remains fully man and fully God. The incarnation was not reversed at the resurrection, and it wasn't reversed at the ascension. Today, there is a human sitting at the right hand of the Father. Jesus remains fully man and fully God. And fully man and fully God, he will return and minister in the kingdom the way that he did when he walked the shores of the Sea of Galilee the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 emphasizes that. But verse 6 underlines the fact, yes, he's still fully man, but he is and forever shall be fully God. The Lord our righteousness. That's how it's brought over into the English. But what it says is Yahweh our righteousness. There's a de the, the declaration there that the coming king will be God, will be Jesus. So the day is coming, Jeremiah declares, on the other side of exile, and we know way on the other side of exile, but the day is coming when God will no longer judge the kings of Judah. He's going to return in the person of Jesus as king of Judah and Israel, and for that matter, the whole world. Our, the Lord, our righteousness. That our is inclusive, it's comprehensive. There's no one excluded from it in the coming kingdom. Jesus will be the Lord, our righteousness, and will be universally recognized as such. Every knee will bow. The days are coming, verse 7. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but rather, but instead, they're going to say something new, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country, and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. As the Lord lives, that's a familiar Old Testament expression of emphasis underlining that something is true. We, the, the way that we might say, so help me God. You know, put a hand on, on the Bible. You know, put your left hand on the Bible, your right hand towards heaven. So help me God. Sometimes in the Old Testament we see that spoken by people. Sometimes it's spoken by God himself. And, and with that emphasis, with that highlighting or underlining, Jeremiah speaking for God says, 
the days are coming when the high point, the high watermark of God's work on behalf of his people is going to change. Historically, it was always the Exodus, right? Again and again in the Old Testament, especially places like Psalms, where people are singing God's praises, reciting his faithfulness. This was God who parted the Red Sea. This is God who brought us out of Egypt. This is God who, who led us through the desert. That was always the, 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 the zenith is the high point, right? Yeah, this was always the zenith of, of God's work. But Jeremiah is saying, but there's going to be something that makes that look tiny and insignificant. There's going to be a greater work and a greater deliverance, a global regathering of the Jewish people. Short term, post-exile, it'll be bringing them back from the north. Long term, they're in the same sentence. We have both short term and long term prophecy. Long term, from the four corners of the globe, as we saw again and again in Isaiah, right? But now the tone shifts again. From chapter 9 to the, or verse 9 rather, to the end of the chapter, Jeremiah says, okay, but enough about the future. Let's talk about the present. The future is going to be glorious. The present, yeah, not so much. Verse 9, my heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man. and like a man whose wine is overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy words. The false prophets, the prophets of Jeremiah's day were not speaking the words that people needed to hear. They were not speaking the word of the Lord. They were speaking words from their own hearts, words that they made up, words that fell on welcome ears. They were speaking the things that people wanted to hear, the, people, the, the words that people asked them for. And as Jeremiah watches this play out tragically, unnecessarily, people ignoring his warnings while eating up the, the false words of, of, of these for-profit prophets, it broke his heart. Like a, like a drunken man, like a man whose wine is overcome because of the word, because of his, it's wrecking him. Verse 10, For the land is full of adulterers, for because of a curse the land mourns, the pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Their course of life is evil and their might is not right. He's watching people plunge headlong towards destruction. It's breaking his heart. He's, he's watching people commit adultery, both, both literally in the carnal sense and spiritually. And, 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 and we've talked before about how those two things are related. They're committing spiritual adultery. They're, they're running around with false gods. But the worship of many false gods was, was all wrapped up in fertility rites and, and all kinds of, of, of sexual things. And meanwhile, the land isn't producing the fruit that God had promised. The, the, the skies aren't producing the rain that they expected in season. They weren't producing the rain that the false gods promised. Because many of the gods that, that Israel was given over to worship were specifically weather gods and fertility gods and gods of the harvest. But if they remembered what God had said all the way back in Deuteronomy, they would say, wait, this is a clue. Because God promised if we turned our hearts against Him, He told us if we disobeyed, He would dry up the clouds. He would bring drought. But they were refusing to, to not put two and two together. They were refusing to do the math. They were plowing ahead. Their course is evil, their might is not right. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house I found their wickedness, says the Lord, verse 11. 
Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery ways, and in the darkness they shall be driven on and fall on them. For I will bring disaster on them the year of their punishment, says the Lord. People are plowed ahead, spurred on, wrongly encouraged by both prophet and priest. And that's telling, because prophet and priest were supposed to be check and balance against one another in a sense. When the priests drifted, God sent the prophets, why? To correct them, to instruct them, to exhort them to get back on track. The prophets were there to, to, to keep the priests' eyes where their eyes ought to be, on the Lord. But what happens when the ones who are supposed to correct the priests are themselves refusing correction? And Jeremiah throws up his hands and he says, This? <laughs> we're seeing it. It's happening. Or more accurately, verse 13, it's happening again. I've seen folly in the prophets of Samaria, the northern kingdom. They prophesied by Baal and caused my people Israel to err. What's he saying? He's saying, this happened before. This happened more than 100 years ago. This was the downfall. This was the cause of the demise of the northern kingdom. Prophets leading people astray. And it would have been great if we'd learned from their mistake. But we didn't. Not only, he goes on, he says, not only did we not learn, we're doing something worse. Verse 14, I've seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and they walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of the evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me and all her inhabitants are like Gomorrah. The prophets in the north were at least honest. They said they were prophets of Baal. They, they said, hey, we're worshiping a different God now. We've got a new plan. Come over and, and worship with us. We've got a different program. That was bad. It was evil. It was horrible. It was wicked. But it was truthful. The prophets in Judah, God is saying, are worse. How? They claim to be speaking for me. The prophets in Judah were dishonest because they claimed to represent the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob while filling the people's ears with lies that came straight from the pit of hell. That's wicked to a degree. The only thing that God can think to compare them to is Sodom and Gomorrah, which is pretty bad. So like Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 15, they must be judged. Verse 15, therefore, because of this, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, the false prophets, behold, I'll feed them with wormwood, bitter water, and make them drink the water of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into the land. Now, what exactly were they doing? Can you, can you elaborate a little bit, God? Sure. Verse 16, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not the mouth of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is telling us how the, how the false prophets offended God to the point where he's, 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 I was going to say contemplating, but he's decided upon the kind of judgment that he just described. But he's also, because, because God is God and God is merciful, he's still saying, 
Stop listening to them. Just stop it. Plug your ears. Verse 17, they continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, he shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. Keep doing what God thinks is evil and call it good. Nothing bad is going to happen. Ignore the Lord. How bad could that be? And God says, verse 17, or verse 18 rather, no. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and has perceived and heard his word, who has marked his word and heard it? They don't speak for me, God says. They're not pointing you to truth. In fact, they're telling you to ignore the truth. You need to not listen. And you need to not be standing close to these guys when judgment comes, because judgment is going to come. Verse 19, Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. God speaking in the prophetic past tense, as if it's already happened. It's coming. It's certain. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he's executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you'll understand it perfectly. I've not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I've not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they'd stood in my counsel and caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned them from their evil ways and from the evil of their doings. By your fruit, by their fruit, you will know them, right? Don't miss, by the way, another long-term kind of a fulfillment here. Latter days, that signals a long-term prophecy. Judah doesn't understand, Jeremiah says, the destruction that's coming, and still won't understand it when it happens. Only afterwards will it begin to make sense. Is there a partial fulfillment through the 70 years of Babylonian exile? Sure there is. Because Israel never returns to the kind of idol worship that God is condemning here. The Baals and the Ashtoreths and, and so forth. The, the Babylonian exile successfully removed those from the, the, the hearts of God's people. But did they fully grasp the lesson? Did they entirely appreciate, even in exile, even after 586 and the destruction, everything that God was saying, everything that God was intending? How, no. How do we know? They repeat their mistake again. Just like they repeated it in 586 after they made it in, in 722. Just, after, just, just as Judah repeated the mistake that Israel made a century earlier, they repeat it again in the days of Jesus. They ignore the word of the Lord spoken by the Lord. And in the middle of tribulation, they're going to throw up their hands and they're going to say, Why, God? I thought we were your people, Lord. And only at the end, only when they finally cry out with the words of Isaiah 53, only when they finally are given over fully to repentance will they completely understand what God is trying to convey here. You're leading my people away from me. God says to the false prophets. He indicts the false prophets. And then he goes on to ask, and you think you're going to get away with this? Who do you think you're dealing with? Verse 23, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? 
I'm, I'm God who dwells in the enormity of the universe, and I'm God who's involved in the division of a cell. I'm God who holds the atoms of the universe together. Where, are you, where do you think you're going to hide from me? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Do you think I don't see? Do you think I don't know? Do you think you can hide from me, deceive me? Do you think I don't notice or care? I've heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I've dreamed, I've dreamed. I've heard it and it's rubbish, God says. How long will this be in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. The, the idea there's forgot my name in favor of Baal, replaced my name with the name Baal. And remember, name in Eastern Scripture means more than just name. It, it means character. It means the, the entirety of a person. They've forgotten my love, my goodness, my faithfulness, my justice, my might, my, my strength. And they've substituted something lesser, something weaker, and something wicked. If you're confused about that, God isn't done yet. If you're confused about that, put my, my words next to the words of these false prophets. Compare them. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell the dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully there's no comparison what is the chaff to the wheat says the lord what is what is straw to good grain straw fills but it doesn't nourish grain nourishes is not my word like a fire says the lord a consuming fire that that burns up and burns off impurities and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces we can fall upon the rock or be broken beneath the stone is the idea there these prophets are far from God. Verse 30, Therefore, behold, I am against these prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words, everyone from his neighbor, who quote me out of context, in, in essence. Behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who use their tongues and say, He says, who attach thus saith the Lord to things that they made up in their own minds. Behold, I am against those who prophesy false dreams. Oh, I had a vision. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't authenticate anything, says the Lord. And tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their recklessness. Yet I did not send them or command them, therefore they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. You lead my people away from me. You say I sent you when I didn't. You don't help, you hurt. Do I need any more reason to judge you, God is asking. Verse 33, so when these people or the prophet or the priest ask you, saying, what is the oracle of the Lord? You shall say to them, what oracle? Again, a little bit of wordplay here. What is the oracle? What is the word of the Lord? And another way of expressing that is, what is the burden of the Lord? What has God given you to share? That was a common way for prophets to begin their messages, right? The oracle of the Lord, the burden of the Lord, the word of the Lord. God is saying to Jeremiah, okay, the next time somebody asks you, what's the burden of the Lord? What new word from the Lord do you have? Your answer should be, what burden? Because there's a double meaning there. A, I have no new no word for you. You need to go back and listen to the things I've already said and obey them. I have no new word for you, but, but here's the other meaning. You are the burden. 
And do you think that God is going to have a hard time casting you aside? Do you think that you're somehow heavy lifting? That the Lord is going to break a sweat judging you? No, verse 34. Or verse 43. Yeah, what oracle? I'll even forsake you, says the Lord. Verse 34. And as for the prophet and the priest and the people who say the oracle of the Lord, I'll even punish that man and his house. Don't tell me about your dreams. Don't tell me about your visions. Don't tell anyone your opinions. Talk about what I've said. And don't talk about anything except for what I've said. Verse 35, Thus every one of you shall say to his neighbor and every one to his brother, What has the Lord answered? And what has the Lord spoken? And the oracle of the Lord you shall mention no more. For every man's word will be his oracle. For you perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. Thus you shall say to the prophet, What has the Lord answered you, and what has the Lord spoken? But since you say the oracle of the Lord, therefore thus says the Lord, because you say this word, the oracle of the Lord, and I've sent you, saying, Do not say the oracle of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you and forsake you in the city that I gave you and your fathers, and will cast you out of my presence, and I'll bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual blame which shall not be forgotten. I've had enough, says God. Just stop. You're wicked, and I'm going to judge you for your wickedness. Now let's pop out to the big picture for a second. We're going to press on to chapter 24. It's short. But but before we do, let's go big picture for a moment and remind ourselves of the context. 21 and 22, judgment against the kings. 23 that we just ended, breath of air, but then judgment against the prophets. Chapter 24 speaks against the people, in the broadest possible sense, of Jerusalem. As we're going to see in a moment, it's specifically to the people of Jerusalem after Jehoiachin and others are carried away to Babylon. I put a reminder of the, the kind of where we are in the timeline in the notes. 597, Jehoiachin is carried away to Babylon. So sometime between that and 586, the final defeat of Jerusalem, the final siege, the final destruction, and the final exile is when chapter 24 is spoken. And remember, that's, 586 is the third round of deportation. 607 was round one. Jehoiakim surrenders to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar takes essentially Judah's brightest and best, Daniel, Daniel's friends, and others. Then a few years later, Jehoiakim revolts with, with the help of Egypt. He fails. He dies in the process. Nebuchadnezzar personally travels to Jerusalem. He attacks, he takes control, and he, and he ushers, oversees another wave of deportation, which includes Ezekiel. That happens in 597. And at this point, most of the productive populace of Jerusalem has been exiled. Only the poorest are left. After that, Nebuchadnezzar appoints Zedekiah, and eventually he rebels. He joins a coalition with Edom and Moab and Phoenicia and Ammon, and and he pushes back. And at that point, Nebuchadnezzar has really had enough, and he burns the city to the ground. And he takes most of even the the poor remaining, leaving only the poorest of the poor to be the the vine dressers and the farmers and the, the taxpayers, because he's still insisted on collecting taxes. 2 Kings 24-25 has the, has the history, but Patrick, why the refresher? Because chapter 24 is after 597. It's after that second deportation. 
So it's been two waves of people dragged into exile. And the people who remain in Jerusalem are drawing the wrong conclusion about it. They're looking around and they're saying, we must be the blessed ones. God must really like us because we haven't been forced from the land. And God answers through Jeremiah 24, verse 1, and says, yeah, not so fast. The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim. Jeconiah, Keniah, Jehoiachin, same guy, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem, and brought them to Babylon. <clears throat> Excuse me. One basket in this vision had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten, they were so bad. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten, they're so bad. Good figs from Israel are among the best figs in the world. I don't even particularly like figs, but when I was in Israel, figs in Israel are great when they're good. But bad figs from anywhere are disgusting. So this is a vivid illustration. What does the illustration mean? God tells us, again, the word of the Lord came to me, verse 4, saying, verse 5, thus says the Lord God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Jerusalem, who have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. For I'll set my eye on them for good, and I'll bring them back to this land. I'll build them and not pull them down, and I'll plant them and not pluck them up. Then I'll give them a heart to know me that I'm the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their own heart. So a couple things. The first, God says to the people remaining in Jerusalem, I think you're confused. The ones in exile are going to turn out to be the blessed ones. God is saying, I'm going to have grace on those that I'm going to have grace on. And the form that my grace takes, well, that's for me to decide. And in this instance, his grace is upon those that are forced into exile. They aren't going to suffer the way that those remaining in Jerusalem are going to suffer in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar burns the city to the ground and afterwards. But that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is we just went, we just went messianic again, didn't we? The relevant part for those that Jeremiah is addressing has to do with the near term, has to do with the next 10 years. But what did God just say in verses 6 and 7? He said, I'm going to bring you back and not uproot you. And I'm going to bless you. And you're going to worship me with, your, with all of your heart. That, wasn't, that didn't happen in 536. That didn't happen in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. How do we know? Because in 70 AD, they got uprooted all over again. When will verse 7 be fulfilled? At the end of the tribulation. When Jesus returns, when Israel enters into the new covenant. Because that's what God just invoked there, right? I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and they will return to me with their whole heart. That's the new covenant that Jesus introduced at the Last Supper. Jesus hadn't even introduced that covenant when God spoke this. And he hadn't introduced it when Israel trampled on it again. Even now, those who benefit from the new covenant are, are you and me, are the church, are the Gentile world. And the very occasional Jewish believer 
who recognizes Jesus. The exception that proves the rule almost. So the good figs are those who are deported. What are the bad figs? Verse 8. The bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they're so bad. Surely thus says the Lord, so I will give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt, wherever they find themselves. We can squint at this passage a little, this next verse. I'll deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they're consumed from the land that I gave them and their fathers. We can squint at this a little and we can see long-term fulfillment here as well. That goes well beyond 586 because it, it, it seems to better describe when God drove them from the land in 70 AD after they rejected their Messiah. When he drove them into all nations and not just into Babylon, where they were a reproach of all people. That's today. Antisemitism rampant in the world today. In verse 10 also, when they ignored the words of the prophets. I'll send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them. They ignored the words of the prophets. They ignored the words of the prophet John. They ignored the words of the prophet Jesus. And so God once again drove them from the land. And, and we'd have to be reading this passage, these passages, these chapters, with our heads in a bucket or something to not see the application for the church, right? Because we see the church. And we see pastors embracing that which God calls evil, running headlong from their calling, running away from the Word, the truth of the Word, the safety of the Word, the certainty of the Word, to the cheers of people urging them on, to the cheers of false prophets saying, right on, keep going, we love it. I generally am not a fan of so-called discernment ministries. Ministries who set as their mission to point out the error that they find in the church. And part of the reason I get frustrated by discernment ministries is by and large they seem to enjoy what they do too much. Jeremiah, go back to the beginning of chapter 23. What did we read? He was wrecked. He was horrified. He agonized over having to speak these things. And he's like, I, I stumble around like I'm drunk. That's, that's how much it affected him physically to have to pronounce these woes against God's people. And, and the problem with so many so-called discernment ministries is you can almost see them rubbing their hands together. Oh, we get to bring down another one. And, and, and 
we've seen that spirit. Some of you I know have been paying attention to that spirit in these last days as, as people have sharpened their swords and sharpened their teeth and gone after Alistair Begg. Why? Because a grandmother asked him with, with a lot of weight and a lot of trepidation, is it sin to go to my granddaughter's gay wedding? And his answer, which I thought was quite reasonable, was it depends. But it's not automatically sin. I think that's a great answer. Because anything like that, we have to weigh, okay, I don't want to call good what God calls evil. I don't want to anybody to be confused about my convictions or, or worse still confused about, about what the Lord believes. On the other hand, Jesus never rebukes anybody for loving someone too much. And I think that there's a, there's a place to, to, to do what Jesus did and to eat among the sinners. And I think that parsing which is which and, and which of God's instructions is appropriate for which situation has to be an individual case-by-case situation. And it has to be accompanied by a lot of prayer and a lot of seeking the Lord. But I look at it and, and, and I remember that God's love is always retail. It's never wholesale. God loves each of us individually and He speaks to us about how to love each person individually in each situation. I thought it was a good answer to a tough question. It depends. But man, he's been attacked. He's been taken off of radio stations. He's been uninvited to conferences. And, and yet, I, I have to reluctantly acknowledge that in a time when pastors are leaving their first love and taking the people of God with them, we need prophets in this day. I think we need sober-minded prophets. I think we need weeping prophets like Jeremiah. I think we need prophets who tremble over the words that they speak. But prophets who are willing to say, what has God said? And, and how does God's Word apply to, to the situations, the challenging situations that we face? Paul Tripp, in his book, Dangerous Calling, written to pastors and leaders, warns about what will happen in the church when pastors live in echo chambers. And all they hear are, are, are the sound of their own voice, their own ideas, their own heart being reflected back to them. A dangerous calling. And that's, and, that's, and that's how we make it more dangerous. By surrounding ourselves with people who speak pleasant things. Because that's what happened to Judah. That's what happened to Israel. And if we aren't willing to have people in our lives who love us enough to speak truth, not just pastors, not just leaders, but all of us as believers, if we don't have people who are willing to speak prophetically, prophetically in the, in the sense of forthcoming, not foretelling, but people who are willing to stand on God's Word, we're going to make horrific mistakes with tremendous confidence. 
And that's how people end up standing before God saying, I did miracles. I preached to crowds. I, people raised their hands only to hear, yeah, I never knew you. We are beneficiaries of the new covenant that Jesus introduced the night before the crucifixion. We have, through that new covenant, new hearts. We need to seek God with all of those hearts, the way that Israel will one day. As we seek Him, He will be found. And He will lead us in truth and righteousness. He is for us today, right now, the Lord, our righteousness, who also loves us. Father, thank You. Lord, give us the heart of Jeremiah to see those who fall away, to see those who turn away, to see those who speak false things, to see those who tickle ears with compassion, but also with trepidation. Oh, but for your grace, Lord, we would follow them. But for your grace, Lord, we might be, be out in front leading with them. Keep us simple before you. Keep our hearts pure to hear and do your word, to love people in your name.